not necessarily a super long chapter, but man, it's a, it's a, it's a heavy chapter. It's an important chapter. And um, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to, to make it come alive to us. Amen? Because if we just come to, to get more head knowledge, I mean, there's some value to that. But we want our lives to be changed. We want this to, to wreck us in a good way and shape the way that we think and correct us. And so, um, Father, to that end, we ask you, would you let your word pop, just come off the page? Lord, we can read it, but unless your Holy Spirit illuminates it, Lord, frankly, it's just like, it's just words on paper. So, Lord, make it come alive. Um, collectively, we want to understand what it means, but individually, I think we all are hungry for a, a word from you something that would speak right to our lives and our situation and help us to respond appropriately as we look at this chapter. And um, we ask this in the name of your son Jesus, in faith and expectation for your glory. Amen. Amen. So um, if you're just joining us in the study or it's been a while, just real quick, we've been in this section of, of the book of Exodus that has taken several weeks where Moses has been on the mountain, literally having this mountaintop experience with God for 40 days, 40 nights. He's received the actual hand written by God, 10 commandments on tablets of stone, and then also um, instructions about building the tabernacle. And we've looked at that for a few months now. But now the party's kind of coming to an end. It's been said, you know, with every mountaintop experience, there's oftentimes a valley that comes after that. And that's about what's about to happen to Moses. Um, so let's pick up the story. Again, we're right at the end of the 40 days, 40 nights. He's just been given the engraved, you know, Ten Commandments on stone. And we're just going to pick it up in chapter 32. And really, just, I mean, if I had to introduce the chapter a little bit, I would just say it's one of the saddest chapters, literally, um, in the history of, of the nation of Israel. It's a, it's a real downward spiral, but there's some great lessons. So let's jump in. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf, or maybe a better translation would be like a young bull. And they said, these are the gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now notice that. Look at verse 6 then. So they rose up early. Wasted no time. <laughs> rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people uh, sat down to eat, drink, and then rose up to play. This is such a crazy paragraph in light of what we've been studying. Here's Moses 
literally having the mountaintop experience of his life in the presence of God, receiving the Ten Commandments in God's presence. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, down in the valley, like the, the, you can almost see it if it was a movie, you know, like the, the, the camera like pans down into the valley, and the people, the two million-plus children of Israel, almost forgotten about those guys. They're still camped out down there, and it says because Moses delayed, they were like, we don't know what's become of this guy. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he's dead. We don't know if he's alive. We don't know if he ditched us. We don't know what's going on. So Aaron, they call Aaron, second in command, right? Aaron, whip up some gods for us that can lead us, you know, to wherever we're going. And Aaron says, okay. <laughs> I mean, all this is so shocking. There's like a lesson in every sentence. It's hard to know where to start. But Aaron, like, says, okay, well, give me all your gold, and he gets the gold, and he melts it down, and he makes this golden calf or bull, sets it up, and now this is something that's interesting that I would just point out. It says in verse 5, they said, not Aaron said, they said, these are the gods that brought us out of, out of Egypt. But then Aaron said, notice, okay, so I'm going to build this altar, and tomorrow we're going to have a feast unto what? The Lord. Do you guys see what happened there? The people were like, oh, it's just a full-on idol. But Aaron was like kind of caught in between. Like, I know this is wrong, but at the same time, I want to, like, he's trying to, like, play both sides. And he creates this idol. But then what does he say? But we're still going to offer unto the Lord. And he uses the word Jehovah or a Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, indicates that he's using the name of God. So what is he doing? He's trying to like, I, I want to give Aaron the benefit of the doubt. You could probably do a whole sermon series on how Aaron screwed this one up. And bad leader, how to be a bad leader, Aaron 101. But instead of like standing up saying, no, this is wrong, you guys, we just heard the commandments. He says, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we'll make this idol, and I, I'm imagining that in Aaron's mind, what he was trying to do is simply aid them in their worship, give them a visual aid to worship the Lord. Does that make sense? Never a good idea. In their minds, they're like, well, why are they still bent on idol worship? We'll talk about that in a second. But I'm trying to deal with Aaron's blunder here. And I think what he was thinking, and I'm just speculating, but I think what he was thinking is that, it's not really idol worship. We're, yes, we're giving an idol, but these guys have Egyptian tendencies. This is what they know, but we'll just say it's under the Lord, and it's like they, he just kind of gave them a visual aid, but it was really in the heart supposed to be to the Lord. Now, that's not how they took it. They just went buck wild with it, as we'll talk about in a second. But guys, just, just as a, a comment on that, throughout church history, never been a good idea to create visual aids, whether it's a picture of Jesus, whether it's a statue of Mary, because our idolatrous nature will always gravitate towards that and begin to venerate those things and will indulge in idol worship. We just really will. I think it's a mistake in the history of the church when we've erected idols like statues of Mary, statues of Peter, and even like pictures of Jesus. We've got to be careful with that. We're not really supposed to have the visual aids. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Amen? But all that to say, I'm trying to give Aaron the benefit of the doubt, but the people, man, they went crazy. In fact, it says, I don't know if you noticed this, it says in verse 32, or excuse me, chapter 32, verse 6, 
It says they got up early. I mean, they were stoked to do this. Got up early for church, <laughs> offered to their idols, and then once that was all out of the way, they sat down to eat, drink, and then I love how, like, refined it says, and play. Like, they weren't playing like, I don't know, they weren't playing like, uh, what's that game where you throw the beanbags, you know, through the, what's it called? Cornhole. <laughs> they weren't playing cornhole. They weren't playing like lawn darts. You guys understand what I'm saying? Actually, um, one translator put it this way. They sat down to have a drunken, immoral orgy. That's the idea. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 actually comments on this. And it says in, excuse, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 7, um, it says this. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, speaking of that generation, as it is written, the people sat down to eat, to drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And it goes on. But that's the idea. See, they were kind of incorporating what they saw, what they knew from Egypt. And guys, it just turned into a, a, a total, absolute, flesh-out, self-indulgent, sexually charged, crazy, crazy time. And you have to ask yourself, how in the world could they have gone this far off the cliff this soon? Do you guys ever, do you ever think about that? How could there be this level of apostasy? Please listen, because I don't know, I mean, this is like at the core of the whole chapter, and you might forget a lot of the other details of the chapter, but don't miss this. Because this is what's going on. You might say, how could they do that? Do you understand? They could still see the cloud of God's presence on Mount Sinai. They're looking right at it. They're not even three months separated from visually experiencing and physically experiencing the ten plagues in Egypt and the Passover. And they, they, they saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw God heal the waters at Mara. They're still enjoying manna every morning. They saw water flow out of a rock like a river. They heard God's voice six weeks earlier Boom down the Ten Commandments, the first of which is, Thou shalt have no other God before me. And their response was, Absolutely, we'll totally obey that. They're six weeks out from that, and now they're bowing down to an idol, getting drunk, and having sexual orgies. How in the world? <laughs> but here's the key here's what's going on. In Acts chapter 7, there's a comment about this. Stephen. The first, one of the first deacons, he got arrested. He's being brought before the Sanhedrin, the council there in Jerusalem. And he's uh, giving the defense. And his defense was basically, he gives the whole history of the nation of Israel. But he gets to this part and he says, verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey. This is Acts 7, 39 and 40. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and here's the operative phrase. And in their hearts, they returned, or they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. That's the whole key, isn't it? You see, they were physically out of Egypt, but Egypt wasn't out of them. 
They were out of the bondage physically of Egypt, but guys, all they had ever known was Egypt, and it's one thing to get them out of Egypt, but it's a completely different thing to get Egypt out of them. Now, before we're too hard on them, I think we can relate to that. Because Egypt is a type of slavery to sin in the world. And being brought out of Egypt is a picture or type of our salvation. We've been saved, if you would, out of spiritual Egypt by the blood of not a physical lamb, but the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ shed his blood. We've been pulled out of Egypt, pulled out of the slavery of sin. We've been delivered and we're free. Amen? But how many of you guys could say, oh, I'm saved and I'm out of Egypt, but I've got Egyptian tendencies. In my heart, I can quickly go back to Egypt. I can go back to those things that I left behind. In fact, it's an interesting thing because once you've been walking with the Lord for a while, you can start looking back. And by when I say Egypt, you guys understand I'm talking typically now. You can look back at the world and the world's way of thinking and what the world calls fun and what the world does for entertainment and the world's mode of operation. And you can be in the church and you can be walking with the Lord. And if you're not careful, your heart, if you let it, will turn back to Egypt. And you can come to church and you can claim to be a child of God and you certainly are. I'm not doubting that. But in your heart, you can give way to that Egyptian way of thinking and end up doing things, thinking things, participating in things that at one point you think, how could I do that after all I've experienced, after all the Lord's done in my life? And I can't be too hard on the Egyptian because I've done that. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed at some of the gross sins and things I've done after I got saved. And maybe you can relate to that. I know in my heart, if I let it wander, I can go and I can, I can allow it to have, to just kind of look at what the world's doing. We got to be careful. We got to be so careful. This is really what's been on my heart as I've been preparing for this because, I, you know, Pastor Steve's teaching us through 1 Corinthians. You know what? Not to steal any thunder from that study. It doesn't hurt us to hear it twice anyways, but you know what the issue was with the Corinthians? They were carnal which that's not a word we use a lot, but maybe you have gone to Paco's Tacos and ordered a carne asada burrito. Carnal, carne, carnal means flesh. They're flesh Christians. What does that mean? They're Christians, but their lives are being dominated by their flesh, by their old nature, by the world's way of thinking. Oh, they're believers, they're in the kingdom of God, but their lifestyle is dominated, they just bow down and give in to their flesh like they were still living in the world. And therefore, they're carnal Christians. They're Christians, but they're carnal. Therefore, they, are, they have no witness in the world. They have no usability in the kingdom of God. They have no joy in and of themselves. As, as sometimes we say, they've got too much in the world to, in them to enjoy the Lord, but too much of the Lord to enjoy the world. And so, guys, that's how they got here. Their hearts were still in Egypt. They were out of Egypt, but their heart was still in Egypt. Where's your heart tonight? Where's your heart? I think that of all the lessons we have to just, and I'm asking myself, I'm not wagging a pointing, condemning finger at anybody. I just know from my own experience how easy it is to let my heart wander back to Egypt. Don't let it. It's a shame that we know every celebrity and we know who they're dating and who they've divorced and we know NFL players and we know all the surfing stats and we know all the basketball this and we know all that but we don't know what the heck the book of Leviticus is about we don't know what the heck the book of 1st Thessalonians is about 
Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. How does my heart get back to Egypt? I invest in the things of Egypt. How does my heart get onto the things of the Lord? I invest into the things of the Lord. Does that make sense? I just don't feel like going to church. I'm not really into church. Start going to church and you'll get into church. Now I'm speaking to the choir because you guys are already here. I'm not really into the Word of God. We'll start getting into the Word of God and you'll get into the Word of God. Does that make sense? You don't wait for your emotions. You drive your emotions. You don't let your emotions drive you. You say, well, my heart's not really in that. And we think, once my heart attaches to that, then I'll really invest in the things of God. No, you won't. Because your heart will not naturally go towards those things. You have got to invest your heart into those things. And when you do, your heart, when you put your treasure, I should say, in those things, your heart will follow. Amen? So all that to say, guys, here's the root of the whole issue with this whole scene of debauchery is that their hearts were back in Egypt. They were out, but their hearts were still there. And I think that's just a, a, a kind of a wake-up call, kind of a slap in our face like, wow, that's a tendency that I can have if I'm not careful. Amen? Well, let's, okay, no amens. Okay, let's move on. Verse 7, well, let's see what happens now. And I've kind of spent a lot of time on the front end, so let's kind of wheel through this a little bit. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Just a point of interest. Did you notice God here? Moses, you need to go down the hill because your people who you brought up, he's not even claiming these people at this point. He's like, they're your people. <laughs> Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly, there it is, out of the way that I commanded them. They made for themselves a golden calf and they've worshiped and sacrificed to it and said, these are the gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. And behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Now take note of that. First of all, God correctly diagnoses the people. They're stiff-necked. You know what stiff-necked means? It means like, you ever had like a kid where you're like, look at me, and they, you go to touch their, their chin to kind of direct it gently to look in your eyes, and they go like this. I will not look at you. I will do what I want to do. That's stiff-necked. That's what he diagnoses his people as. They're, they're bent on sin. Verse 10 is, is hugely important, and I'm going to revisit it in a second, but just notice this. God says, now let me alone. I think that's the key phrase that my wrath may burn hot against them and consume them. And check this out. In order that I might make a great uh, nation out of you. Did you guys catch that? God's like, now Moses, this is what they've done. Step aside, son, so I can smoke these fools. That's what it means in the Hebrew. Just kidding. And I'll make you a great nation. I'm going to start over with you, Mo. Well, this was his response. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Notice he's not claiming them either. First of all, God, they're your people, not mine, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with your great power, right, and with a mighty hand. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent he did bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. And it says in Hebrews that he swore by himself because there's nothing higher to swear by. 
And you said to them, I will multiply your offspring like the stars of heaven, and this land that I will have promised I will give to your offspring, and you will inherit it forever. Verse 14, and the Lord relented uh, from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on this people. So this is a beautiful scene. We see Moses interceding for the people. Now here's what I just want to mention about this. Um, and you can spend a lot of time on every one of these sentences and and all that, but I want to bring out just a couple of things. First of all, don't get the wrong idea when you read that paragraph. At first read, it can almost seem like, here's what happens. The people sin, God is just out of control, hot, man. He is angry, and he's like, move over, Moses. I'm going to kill these guys and make you a great nation. And then luckily, whew, Moses steps in and talks God off the ledge. God was just out of control, angry, but Moses kept his cool, stepped in. I was like, God, maybe think this through. Maybe you haven't thought all the options through here, God. And it's like, God's like, okay, okay, you're right, Moses. That's not what's happening here. Now, when it says that God relented um, or repented, you know, Numbers uh, uh, 21, 19, Numbers something, 2319, talks about how God is not a man and he can't relent or change his mind. When it talks about God relenting or repenting from not doing what he said he was about to do, it's a tough one because we're using human terms to, to talk about how God is basically just answering his prayer. But here's what you need to understand. I agree with the commentators that the diagnosis as is not Moses talking an angry God off the ledge, but listen, God testing Moses. See, to me, what really made sense as I read through it this time is when he says in verse 10, first phrase, now Moses, leave me alone so that I can kill these guys. What's basically God saying? If you pray to me, God, or Moses, I'm going to show mercy to these guys, so don't leave me alone now. It's as if God is saying, I actually really want you to pray to me right now, but leave me alone so I can smoke these guys. Do you guys understand? God's whole desire was always to show mercy. God wanted to show mercy. It's really a test for Moses. Moses, it says, implored him and prays, and God answers it. Guys, it's not that God was like, you know, flew off the handle but then changed his mind. God always wanted to show mercy. Does that make sense? It's going to be one of a zillion times that God shows mercy to his people. But here's what I love about this, is the heart of intercession that comes out of this. See, in this testing, Moses, it's revealed in Moses this heart of intercession. And guys, to me, I, I could do a whole sermon on this, but I just want to point out three things. Maybe it's an outline that you can run with. On prevailing prayer. The prevailing intercessory prayer of Moses right here. Note three things in your notes. Maybe jot them down so you can think about them, okay? Number one is that it was passionate. Notice what it says in verse 11. Moses implored. You might have the word beseech, begged God. The root word for that in the Hebrew is to be sick. He was sick to his stomach, and it drove him to prayer. Amen? Guys, when you see stuff that makes you sick to your stomach, that is your cue to go to God in passionate prayer. What makes me sick to my stomach so often is when I see brothers and sisters that I love who are 
faltering, who are slipping into sin, who are drifting away, and, I see, and it just kills me. And at that point, I have to beseech God, go to God, and come to God on their behalf and step in the gap for them. I think of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, when he hears a report of Jerusalem thinking, hey, how's things back in Jeru? And they're like, oh, it's not good. Everything's busted down. It's all burnt. And it says his heart just smote him, and he just went into prayer and fasting for months. What's, what's making you sick right now? The, the condition of your family, the condition of your kids, the condition of the country, the condition of the church? With that passion... Go to your face, to God. Sometimes we're so passive in our prayers. And we just kind of, we don't actually even pray. We just worry out loud, you know. You guys ever do that? Like, oh, I'm praying for you. You you didn't really pray. You just kind of voice your worries out loud. But man, when's the last time you got on your face for your kids and you passionately beseeched, begged, God, you have to step in on behalf of my kids. There's no plan B. I need you you know, you know what I'm saying? That kind of passionate prayer. He was passionate. Number two, notice with me, I'm not going to spend a ton of time, but it's a great outline to explore, is number two, did you notice that Moses' Moses's prayer was driven by that passion, but also by the glory of God? Did you guys catch that? He says, why should the Egyptians say that you had an evil intent and the only reason you brought him out of Egypt was to kill him? What's Moses concerned about? It's not so much that he's concerned about this great compassion for the people. He's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, they do deserve to get smoked. But that would not look good on you, God. He was worried about God's reputation. He was worried about God's glory. And I'll tell you, it is a red-letter day, and it is a mark of maturity in your Christian life when your prayers start to be driven by what glorifies God the most and not our happiness or our comfort but it's about what brings God the most glory. How concerned are we for God's reputation? I have sat with couples who are Christians who have told me they're getting a divorce, and when I probe, I find out there's zero biblical grounds for that divorce. And they say, but we're just not happy. And I have to say, you're telling me that your happiness is more important than God's reputation because what you're about to do right now in getting this divorce with no biblical means is you are smearing the name in the, uh, of God to everyone who's watching. That sounds harsh, but that's the truth of the matter. The God of happiness, the God of our whatever, trumps God's glory in our lives sometimes. What if we prayed like this? What if we lived like this? What if we lived in a way where like, God, this is my situation. Work this out in a way that doesn't necessarily bring me the most comfort and happiness, but brings you the most glory. Amen? Where I live, where I work, what I do, the ministry you want me in, it's less about my comfort, less about my happiness and my contentment. It's everything to do with your name's sake. That's heavy. That's so good. But then lastly, notice this. It was driven by passion. It was driven by God's glory. And it was driven by God's word. He says what? Remember your promise to... Now, do you think God forgot his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? No, God did not remind... Did forget. He's like, oh, phew. Whew, thanks, Moses. I almost forgot. I made those promises. Not at all. God knows his word. But I'll tell you, one of the keys to just to... Um, to uh, prevailing prayer is praying God's word back to him. 
I was doing that even this week. One of my favorite prayers to pray for this church, for my family, is in Colossians 1, where it says that Paul prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that they would live lives worthy of him. And it goes on. And what I do is I interject the names of my family, the names of my kids, the names in this church, this church in general, the church at large. Lord, fill us with the knowledge of your will with spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding, and I just pray God's word back to him. I believe that is a powerful, powerful, powerful way to pray. Amen? So there you have it. Passion, God's glory, God's word. And that's what he did, and God honored that intercessory prayer of Moses. And then look at verse 15. Moses turned, and he went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Listen to this, this is crazy. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard, now remember Joshua was like stationed about halfway down the mountain, he kind of reconnects with him. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, they, they were shouting, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory, nor the sound of a cry of defeat, it's the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw, listen to this, the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had been, uh, and made it, that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it into powder, and scattered it in the water and made him drink it. <laughs> Moses is ticked right now. And does it, does it strike anybody else as almost kind of funny? Like, he comes down the mountain, he's literally holding the stone commandments, and is like, are you kidding me? Boom! And he throws those down. And I'm just like, Pfft. like, it's that one gif, you know, where it's like, anybody knows what I'm talking about. Um, I'm thinking those are like originals, like expensive. Those are like one of a kind, Right? But he throws them down, and what he was doing, guys, by literally breaking the law, breaking those Ten Commandments literally, was displaying to them what they had spiritually done. They broke them all. And by the way, if you break one, you break them all. And he, so that physical act of breaking them was demonstrating to them what had spiritually taken place. They had broken all of the commandments. Takes that calf. That just is just a way of just showing his you know, derision for this whole thing, and he grinds it up, makes him drink it. Probably could talk about that more. We won't. You get the idea. Verse 21. This is classic. Moses says to Aaron, what did this people do that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know these people. They're set on evil. They said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, all right, let any who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire. Out came this calf. Come on. <laughs> I have no idea how this happened. I just threw this gold in the fire and this calf came out. I can't believe this. Um, like I said, you could do a whole m series on um, bad leadership by Aaron's example. He's blaming the people. He's not taking personal responsibility. In fact, I would think the greatest miracle of this whole chapter is that God doesn't just kill Moses or Aaron on the spot. And he lets it, listen, he continues on. He becomes the great, high, the, the high priest. 
for the nation. I, I'm just like scratching my head. I can't believe the mercy and grace you showed to Aaron. This guy's such a fool. And then I think to myself, oh, wow, the grace of God. It's not easy being in leadership positions in any capacity, in your job, in the church. When you, can you imagine, Aaron, there's two million people screaming at him, demanding from the, the guy. I'm not excusing his sin, but what I'm saying is it's not as easy as you think it is. And a lot of times we're pretty harsh on leaders and we're, we're quick to judge. And well, if I was in office, I would, would you? Because I don't think you have any idea how difficult and how lonely it is to be a leader. And the tough calls, the tough decisions. And so, again, I'm not excusing Aaron, but what I'm saying is it just makes me appreciate all the grace that God has shown me for the times I've not led my family well, for the times I've not led the church I pastored in Oregon well, for the times I've made mistakes and capitulated and given in to popular opinion or tried to please people instead of God. You know what? I praise God for the grace that he's shown me as a leader. And I think we need to show grace. Again, not excusing, but we need to show grace to those who are in leadership above us. Amen? Because it's not as easy as it looks. Well, God gives amazing grace to Aaron. Worst excuse ever. Verse 25. Now, um, verse 25 says, Moses saw that the people had broken loose. Now, yeah, verse 25. Moses saw that the people had broken loose. Um, anybody else have a different translation than broken loose? What is it? Unrestrained. Yeah, I think King James says naked. <laughs> um, but the idea was is, is just absolutely let loose. Like let themselves go. Fully indulged. No restraint. Let themselves go. Aaron, uh, let them break loose. Now, this is the, listen to this. To the derision of their enemies. This verse is the one Monday morning I was reading, and it just popped, and I was telling my wife about it. And like, that word derision, it means to the shame. One translation says the laughing stock. You know, in every single one of us, I think there's a temptation and a desire from time to time to just let it all loose, to let go, to be unrestrained, right? But just know that when we do that, when we give into our flesh, when we give into sin, it's to the laughing stock of the enemy, to the people around us. The enemy, our enemy, Satan, who tempted us to do that sin in the first place, then we give in, and then he mocks us over it. Then he rubs our face in it. And there's something that just came to my mind, and, and excuse me for riffing on this for a little bit, but this was just the first thing that popped in my heart about this chapter, was this phrase right here. Their sin, as I said earlier, brought shame to God's name, but it also brought shame to everybody that was watching. What I mean by that is everybody who was watching them, their enemies, the, the nations around them, were looking and, and laughing like, oh, there's God's people. Oh, oh, that's God's people. Okay, awesome. Holy people. 
When I was younger in the Lord, and I could be wrong on this, it's just my opinion, it just seems this way, so I could be wrong. But it seems like, like when I was in my early 20s, I was, had some friends, and we were like, we really wanted to live for God. I mean, we weren't perfect, obviously, but we wanted to live for God. And we would say this phrase a lot, and I used to hear it a lot. I'd hear it in church a lot. I heard it in conversation a lot. This phrase, um, I don't want to damage my witness, or that's not a good witness. And you know what? I was just, this hit me Monday. I don't hear that very much anymore. I don't, I don't hear that kind of talk anymore. I don't hear people overly concerned about how their actions are coming off to the people that are watching. Because the point is, is if we're witnessing with our mouth, that means we have to witness with our lives so that there's not a disconnect in the people that we're witnessing to. And again, I'm not trying to be overly critical because I'm, I'm lumping myself into this. I always do because I am, we're all in this together, right? But guys, we're living, the church culture is capitulating to the, to the worldly culture where the worldly culture is all about just do you, boo. And if they don't like it, well, they can just, who cares? If they don't like it, then that's their problem. You should just express yourself whatever which way you feel like expressing yourself. And we've kind of picked up on that in the church to the derision of the enemy. We're less concerned about our witness. And we say we're followers of Jesus, but we're partying on the weekends, and we're smoking pot, and we're sleeping with our boyfriends, and we're sleeping with our girlfriends, and we're looking at porn online, and we're blasting people on Facebook and coming off with all of our political just hate speech, and we're doing the same things that the world is doing to the derision of the enemy. Shame on us. Shame on me. What about our witness? Guys, I, I prayed a lot about saying this because I, not even for one millisecond, wanted to be communicated in anything but love. But man, it just feels like, it feels, sometimes it just feels like we're losing the battle. We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to be different. We're not supposed to look like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, dress like the world, watch what the world watches. We're supposed to be different. We're ambassadors. You know, ambassadors for foreign countries, they don't go there and morph into the country that they're living in. For example, if I'm an ambassador to Africa, I don't go there and dress like an African. There's nothing wrong with that culture. That's fantastic. But I'm there representing the United States of America, so I dress how in American culture. Does that make sense? We're ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven on this earth. We're not supposed to morph in and look like the world around us because we're representing a different kingdom. We're going to look different. We're going to talk a little different. We're going to act a little different. That's At least we should, amen? It's just, again, I don't know what else to say, guys. We just need to repent, bottom line. We've got to repent. We're never going to see revival we're praying for it, we're praying for it, we're never going to see it unless we repent. On our faces before God. And say, God, I'm sorry for looking like the world, acting like the world. My heart is in the world. Calling sin what it is. 
just confessing it to God and being straight up about it. If you're not going to do that, then please stop calling yourself a Christian. You're making it really hard for the rest of us. Who really want to see this world turn to Christ? Verse 26. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the sons of Levi gathered around him and said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. Go to and fro to the gate throughout the camp, each one of you, and kill his brother and kill his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did that according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of people fell dead. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Now check this out. This is even, it was a little heavy, now it's going to get heavier. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Moses is like, who's on the Lord's side? And the one tribe, Levi, steps forward. Evidently, they abstained from all of the craziness that was happening. And he said, okay, here's what you need to do. Get your swords on and go kill your brothers. Anybody else read this and be like, God, isn't that a little harsh? Anybody else feel that way? Listen, it's not. Here's what it is. To me, it's a reminder that the wages of sin is what? Death. Did you know that sin is, for, excuse me, sin is forbidden because it's bad? It's not bad because it's forbidden. It's not that God just makes rules and if you break them, that's bad. No, he made the rules because sin is bad. Sin kills us. Sin hurts. And the reality is they all deserve the sword. But he said, who's on the Lord's side? The Levites step up and they literally go around and we could talk more about this. They killed their brothers. They killed their companions. Heavy. Now, notice this. At this point, this is what sets the tribe of Levi aside. From here on out, they're like a special tribe. They're the ones that are going to be in charge of the tabernacle. They're going to be in charge of the temple. They're like a special tribe as unto the Lord. They didn't inherit any land when they went in. They were just going to be a special people unto the, unto the Lord. And it was because, man, they stepped up. And they were on the Lord's side. Lots we could talk about this. There's some pretty heavy applications here about standing up for the Lord and using the sword. And I'm going to bypass that just because it's been heavy enough tonight. But I will say this. Listen, it goes on to say, um, oops, I lost my spot. 30, thank you. We're almost done, but check this out. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit uh, the sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made a calf, um, the one that Aaron made. I like how the end it says, and Aaron made it. <laughs> Again, this is pretty heavy, but we can't, we can't end the chapter on the note earlier. We've got to end it on this one because this is great. Moses goes back up the hill, and he says, God, they have sinned a great sin. Forgive them. 
or blot me out of your book. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Paul said something to the same effect in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, where he said he had such a heart for his countrymen, the Jews. He was like, if I could, I would be accursed that they might be saved. He was literally saying, I would die and go to hell if it meant they could be saved. You can't coach that. That is a heart that is God has to put in you. And that's what Moses is saying. He's like, God, if you don't forgive them, then just don't forgive me. And God says, listen, let me make thing, one thing very clear. The person who sinned, they'll pay for their sin. Like, Moses, you can't pay for their sin. But guys, you know what the great news is? There was one that was able to pay for our sin. Penal substitutionary atonement. The te- it's a theological term which just means this. Jesus substituted himself on the cross and all of my foul thoughts and all of my wicked deeds and all of my lies and all of my stuff and all the things I've thought and all the things you've done and all of our sin and all of our junk was laid on him and he bore our sin on the cross once and for all. He who knew no sin was made to become sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And then the righteous life that he lived was taken on from him, if you would, and put upon us. Amen? There was one that was able to stand in the place and take the sin. And guys, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, all of your sin has been forgiven because Jesus paid for it. He stood in your place. He died for your sin. Your name is now written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? Now, one last thing, and I'll close. To prove that I'm closing, I'm closing my Bible. That means something. I want you to note one last thing before we go. Did you guys notice that on day one of the giving of the law, day one, I mean, the stones are still warm. (laughs) Let me make sense. Day one, they broke them all, and 3,000 people died on day one of the giving of the law. But you fast forward several thousand years, to a celebration called Pentecost, which was, amongst other things, a remembrance and a celebration of the giving of the law. And in that upper room, 120 people waiting, the Holy Spirit came into that room. Tongues of fire above their head, praying in tongues, filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter steps out onto the lanai, preaches in the courtyards of the temple, and on day one, of the Holy Spirit coming, 3,000 people got saved. Because where the law is, is death, but where the Spirit is, there's life. Amen? We're never going to find life. You're never going to find life by keeping the rules or obeying the laws. It's only by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where life is found. Amen? All right, let's pray. Guys, I know there was a heavy section in there. And if I said anything amiss, please forgive me. If I cross the line in my opinion, disregard that. But don't miss the heart of God. That we would allow the Spirit of God to convict us 
for our own sake and for the sake of the lost world around us. Amen. Can we just pray right now in the privacy of our own hearts? Let's just talk to the Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, right now we just come before you. And I want to just start by saying, God, I'm at the, the, the front of the line of failure and sin and wrong heart. And I just want to repent of any attitudes and thoughts and actions, God. Forgive me for smearing your name. Forgive us as a church. living in sin in the privacy of your own heart if there's just anything you want to talk to the Lord about and confess just take this time right now to, to say a few things to him and let's all stand together Father we love you we praise you and we thank you Lord that though we've sinned you came and our sin was put on your shoulders and you bore it on the cross and you died and you raised from the grave and you're alive and because you're alive, we're alive and we praise you that we are forgiven and free and we want to pray you'd fill us with your spirit that we might live in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. Lord, give us that opportunity to be good witnesses this week. In Jesus' name, amen.